In the 49 days she served as Prime Minister, Liz Truss presided over one of the worst economic crises in decades. But the former Prime Minister is largely unrepentant. In a 4,000-word essay released over the weekend, Truss did concede that she was not entirely blameless in the market chaos which was unleashed by her tax-cutting mini-budget. But she pointed the finger squarely at a range of institutions she branded a blob of vested interests for scuppering her plans. Welcome to the iPodcast. I'm Molly Blackall, and this week we'll be looking at what Liz Truss's return from the political wilderness means for the rest of us. Later, we'll be taking a look at the people who attempt to fake their own deaths. But first, let's join Arj Singh, our deputy political editor in Westminster, to look at why Liz Truss's dreams of a low-tax economy might not have died along with her leadership. Morning, Arj. How are things in Westminster? Is it another day of chaos? Well, no, it's all actually quite sensible (laughs) compared to the last year or so. Rishi Sunak's managed to carry out a reshuffle without any of the circus of ministers walking up Downing Street and, and us speculating on who might be in and who might be out who's being sacked and what that might mean. Will there be a problem on the backbenches? He's instead reshuffled a significant number of Whitehall departments and the structure of them and a number of ministers in one go, essentially. So it's all very sensible and and very much in keeping with the Prime Minister's drive for a return to boring politics. Well, I do want to ask you about the reshuffle, but first let me take you back to a slightly less sensible period of time in politics, Arge, Liz Truss. Now, we saw over the weekend that she has written an op-ed, which some are touting as her political comeback, or at least the start of it. Firstly, tell us what she wrote and where this came out. Well, yes, it's not just an op-ed. It was a 4,000-word screed in the Sunday Telegraph, (laughs) obviously a natural home for her libertarian, low-tax instincts. And yeah, it was essentially a lengthy defence of her disastrous 49 days in office, and in particular of the pro-growth policy agenda she was trying to put forward in her now infamous mini-budget. Now, of course, we all know that that mini-budget sort of led to turmoil on the financial markets, which in turn led to turmoil in the in the pensions market and essentially brought down Liz Truss's premiership and the entire, well, nearly the entire programme of massive tax cuts that she wanted to bring in. And essentially, this was her first detailed comment since that disastrous stretch as PM. She acknowledged early in the piece that she wasn't blameless for what went wrong, but to be honest, then turned her fire on everyone from the Office for Budget Responsibility to the Bank of England to even the Conservative Party to Joe Biden as being part of an economic establishment that simply wasn't ready for what she was bringing to the table. Well, I'm not surprised that took 4,000 words. It sounds like she's really turning the gun on quite a lot of heads there. So is it fair for Trust to blame this so-called economic establishment? Well, I, I don't think most voters would think 
this is a reasonable account of of what went wrong. I mean, first of all, you have to just look at some of her first acts when she became prime minister. She sacked the long-standing and well-respected Treasury Permanent Secretary, Sir Tom Scholar, leaving a huge gap in experience at the top of the most important department if you're about to embark on a massive change in economic direction. She also chose to sideline the Office for Budget Responsibility, which is the fiscal watchdog that produces these forecasts at each budget, which essentially show the impact of the policies that you're putting forward on the economy, on the public finances and so on. And she also spent quite a lot of time calling into question the independence and the role of the Bank of England, which is tasked with bringing down inflation and actually pretty brazenly went head to head with the Bank of England. So the idea that these people were to blame for scuppering her plans doesn't really pass muster when she kind of chose to put her hands over her ears and shout la 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 and ignore any kind of warnings about what she was about to embark on. Arj, is this the start of a Liz Truss comeback? What is the purpose of writing a big op-ed like this? You know, she was the longest serving cabinet minister when she became prime minister and she'd spent a long time working very hard to build up her reputation and build up respect. Her, Her career didn't start brilliantly, but you know, we had the infamous cheese speech, but she managed to turn it around, becoming a respected trade secretary and foreign secretary. She'll be wanting to rehabilitate her reputation. But I think mainly, she does not want to see her political ideal of low tax, pro growth, libertarian policies die for a generation because that 49 day stint in office has potentially killed off the idea of a government ever turning towards those policies at any time in the near future. And she wants to save and defend those ideas. Friends of hers have told us that she's not seeking a return to number 10. She wants to use her experience, her standing to to kind of make significant policy interventions in the areas in which she has experience in her decade-long career. So the economy obviously is is the first she's chosen to go on inevitably but the next intervention she's going to make is going to be on China she's going to speak at a conference in Japan on combating the threat of China and we can expect those kind of periodic once every month couple of months kind of big set piece events from her and I think she'll see where that takes her. Now her allies are, are presenting this as a real commitment to her ideology and a genuine desire to push her ideas forward. I wonder if some of our listeners will be wondering if there's a slight element of pot stirring here. Is there any temptation for her to try and destabilise the party a little bit, the party that cast her out so quickly? Well, look, friends of hers say that she's fully behind Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt. At the end of the day, she hired Jeremy Hunt or was forced to hire Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor because she had to sack Quasi Quartem to calm the markets down. But she's smart enough to know that there's this huge internal debate in the Conservative Party right now over tax cuts. Sunak and Hunt are insisting we are not having tax cuts in next month's budget. We need to bring down inflation. We need to get a grip on the public finances. And there's a lot of Tory MPs saying, look, this is just too pessimistic. We need something to give voters. We're 25 points behind in the polls. We need to cheer voters up ahead of the next election, which is, you know, a year and a bit away. We need to have some tax cuts now. So, I mean, Liz Truss will know she is pouring fuel on the fire of that debate. Whether she is the best spokesperson for those advocating for tax cuts is probably another matter, though. 
How has her op-ed and the looming possibility of these regular interventions that we've spoken about been received within the Tory party? Well, it's gone down sort of relatively well among some of her allies, the likes of Simon Clark, who was in her cabinet. Traditional low-tax Tories, like the former leader, Sir Ian Duncan Smith, also say she has a point, and they've kind of revived their calls for tax cuts and pro-growth policies. But I was told over the weekend that some Trussites think that this intervention was brass-necked and too soon. And then on the other side of the party, those allied or supportive of Sunak and the current course, they think it's mad. They're concerned that she could cost them the next election by reminding voters of how a Conservative government essentially put millions of people's mortgages up and made life harder economically for for many people by uh, blowing a massive hole in the public finances as well. Well, let's talk more about that impact on the next election. What are Labour thinking about the trust intervention? Well, it's manna from heaven for Labour. It's a total gift. Divided parties don't win elections. And this is a party divided with a kind of electorally completely toxic figure at the centre of one of the divides in Liz Truss. So they're pretty happy. I guess the one worry they would have is if these divisions continue to destabilise the Tory party, they have a disastrous local election and, you know, it sets the stage for a Boris Johnson comeback. Some in Labour would much rather fight Rishi Sunak at the next election than Boris Johnson, despite Partygate, despite all the rest of it. But again, then others in Labour would say, look, Boris Johnson's damaged goods. We know voters turned against him. So all good, essentially. Yeah, they must be uh, clapping their hands over in Labour HQ. We talked a lot, haven't we, about these divides within the Tory party and the reshuffle or the mini reshuffle that many people have been talking about over the last couple of days is being widely seen as an attempt to kind of bring the Tory party back under control, an assertion from Sunak, if you like, of his power. Is that your read on it? I think that's certainly part of it. But if you look at what he's doing, it's quite detailed reform of government departments in Whitehall and how responsibilities are divided up. You've got the creation of a new science, innovation and technology department, which speaks very much to what Rishi Sunak was saying in his New Year speech about wanting to boost innovation and tech as, as a way to boost growth. And we've also heard that he was kind of unhappy with the way that the business, energy and industrial strategy department has worked over recent years. He fell out with them when he was at the Treasury. So he's created a new energy, security and net zero department and then taken the business element out and given it to Kemi Badenoch, who was the International Trade Secretary. And that's that's an interesting move because it's probably a promotion and an increase in responsibilities for Kemi Badenoch, who is kind of the darling of the right in the Tory party. And it's the right, obviously, that are causing most of the problems for Sunak at the moment. I wanted to ask you a bit about the big winners and the big losers in this. Obviously, it's quite a small scale reshuffle. Is Kemi Badenoch coming out on top here? Yeah, I think it's hard to look beyond her as as potentially the biggest winner, apart from Greg Hans, who's been promoted to Conservative Party chairman. Although you might question whether he's a winner when the Tories are staring down a pretty difficult set of local elections in Mm. May, and he's likely to get the blame for it. Interesting. And you mentioned the big reshuffle of departments. I mean, we've seen the creation of four new departments. It really is a rethinking of some of the core organs of government. 
many of those seem quite sensible, don't they? Removing digital from culture, media, sport, potentially putting business and trade together. Is this being seen within Westminster as potentially a smart decision? Yeah, it all seems very sensible. Look, it's just happened, so we need to look at the details. But uh, it, it does all seem very sensible. It's very on-brand for Rishi Sunak. It's it, it's boring and sensible. The question that people in the party will be asking is, great, I mean, this is good government, and, and maybe voters will reward us for seeing you know a bit of competence after the last year or so. But it, it doesn't get voters' pulses racing, does it? Well, it seems that the things that are getting voters' pulses racing are on the other side of the House. Labour are polling, as you mentioned, 25 points ahead. Is Liz Truss still to blame for this? And has her comeback affected this at all? Or is there a wider problem here? Yeah, I I don't think Liz Truss's comeback is is affecting the poll leader. It's certainly not going to help narrow it for the Tories. But I read from pollsters this morning that essentially Boris Johnson and Partygate took about six points off the Tories' poll rating, and then Liz Truss took another ten off. And Rishi Sunak is currently having to deal with that historic deficit. He hasn't managed to turn it around yet, and it's possibly akin to having to turn around the Titanic. It, it may be impossible for him before the next election. Although I do expect the polls to narrow a little bit, it, it may be just a gap too wide. But then a year and a bit is a long time in politics. And just finally, there's one character I'd like to ask you a little bit more about, which is Boris Johnson. You mentioned there Partygate and the Johnson period really hitting those poll numbers. What is his role in all of this? I know Paul War, our chief political commentator, wrote an article recently saying, forget Liz Truss, it's Boris Johnson that Rishi Sunak should fear. Yeah, indeed. And I think we're about to see Boris Johnson becoming a lot more vocal on big issues that are facing Rishi Sunak's government. So as I wrote at the weekend, we've got this big row coming within the Tory party over the Northern Ireland protocol that governs post-Brexit trade in Northern Ireland. Rishi Sunak wants to do a deal with the EU, but Tory Eurosceptics in the European Research Group are likely to jump up and down and call it a sellout to Brussels. There'll be a big question over whether Boris Johnson decides to join them. If he does, that could prove very potent threat to Prime Minister. Another issue on which Boris Johnson has made his voice heard recently has been pulling out of the European Convention on Human Rights in order to stop small boats coming across the Channel. Again, there's a big bill coming up from the Prime Minister and Home Secretary Suella Bravman. And if it doesn't go far enough, we could see Boris Johnson joining a rebellion of Tory MPs to try and make those reforms more hardline. So big potential problems on kind of existential issues for the government ahead. And Boris Johnson might be joining in to cause trouble for the PM. Fascinating stuff. It sounds like we might have our eyes on the wrong comeback here. All right, Arj, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to speak to you as ever. Thank you. Reporting like this is what we do every single day at I. So if you want to commit to staying up to date in 2023 with trusted, impartial journalism, straight from our team of award-winning reporters and commentators, join us now and get unlimited access to all of our journalism, including subscriber-only newsletters from our expert columnists and a range of daily puzzles. For more coverage of this and other news, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get 20% off a digital subscription to i. 
I is for people with open minds. Our commitment to you is politics without the spin, news coverage without an axe to grind, and lively opinion so you hear all sides of the argument. I for open minds. Subscribe today. In 2020, the daughter of romance novelist Susan Meachin logged onto Facebook and announced her mother's suicide. Meachin's devastated fans in the tightly knit world of self-published romance novels helped to fund her funeral costs and promote the final book that she'd written before her untimely death. Yet three years later, just last month, Meachin resurfaced on social media admitting that she had staged her own suicide. Remarkably, faking your own death, or suicide, is attempted by hundreds of people every year. Our chief features writer, Kasia Delgado, has been speaking to a privacy expert who helps people to disappear. But in an age of social media, CCTV and digital banking, is it really such a good idea to walk away from your life? Kasha, tell us about a couple of the people who you've come across who have faked their own deaths. Well, one of them was Susan Meachin, who um, is based in Tennessee. And in 2020, she appeared to take her own life and her fans within this sort of small but very fervent self-published romance community were devastated. Some of them say they sort of helped pay for her funeral. There was a lot of interest in her within that world. And then a couple of years later, she returns to the land of the living. And it's unclear why, but she didn't die at all. There was another guy, very different situation called Nicholas Rossi, um, who's 34. And in 2019, he said that he had a late stage non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. His death was reported in the newspapers in 2020. There was an obituary, all very positive things, you know, very sad, young man had died. And then actually he was found in a Glasgow hospital a couple of years later. And the reason that he did that was because uh, he was wanted for a rape in America. And so he was extradited back to the US. And then there's the sort of famous John Darwin, who's the Hartlepool ex-prison officer and teacher who had a sort of fake canoe accident and turned up five years later. He handed himself in to a random police station somewhere in the UK and said that he'd had amnesia and that's what had happened. I think the big question that many listeners will be wondering is how you pull something like this off, particularly in the very digital age that we are living in. How do you do it? It's incredibly difficult and all the private investigators and experts I've spoken to have said that it's an almost impossible task in this day and age. You have to have no digital trace. You can't use a credit card. You can't use a, you know, your MasterCard or your Visa. You've got to use cash. You've got to not have any kind of IP address linked to your computer. You can't use a smartphone. You have to go seriously, seriously off grid. And that's a really hard thing to do. Also, in the UK, there are cameras everywhere. You know, we've got a lot of security. So it's, it's really, really hard. But what I found interesting was that actually disappearing is one thing. But staying disappeared is the genuinely difficult thing to do. And actually, that's what most people fail at or, you know, the people we read about in the newspapers. Someone in your piece said that it was like having a full time job. Is that right? 
Yeah, because I think he was saying this private investigator who's been looking at people who have faked their own deaths for his sort of 36 year career. He said that people often think, okay, well, I faked my own death. I've left the UK. I'm in Australia now. I'm safely hiding out in this place. But then, you know, we're humans. People want to get in touch with someone. They might send an email to their wife. They might have a phone call with somebody or they might kind of slip up, get a bit drunk use their credit card when they shouldn't. There are lots of different ways that humans will mess this up because, you know, we're, we're not robots. So the idea that you could stay completely off grid, tell nobody your name, not get identified, not become obviously wanted in the media so that people in the street can see you. I mean, that's a really, really hard thing to pull off. And from what we understand, the majority of people just cannot manage it. And it's, it doesn't sound like an easy life. You know, if you're going to go to those lengths, you've then got to commit to it for the rest of your life. You've talked a lot about people telling their wives or communicating with their wives. Am I picking up that there is a demographic here who might be more likely to commit suicide than others? Is there a certain type of person that in your research has been more likely to do this? It seems to predominantly be men. We don't know exactly why. And of course, there may be loads of women out there who have done it and we just don't know because they've been successful. So, you know, maybe... <laughs> Yeah, we're only hearing about the failed cases here, aren't we? Exactly. So, you know, I don't want to say that women aren't good at this or don't want to do it. But obviously, if we're generalising from the people I've spoken to and the sort of psychologists, it does seem that there is something in certain men, of course, not every man would think about faking their own death or have the desire to pull that off. But the men that, that we've read about, some of them have narcissism, a certain self-delusion, perhaps desperation. But it just tends to be that women don't go down that route. I mean, it's a massive thing to attempt. And I think men are prone to those sorts of drastic actions more so than women. Fascinating. There may well be, you realise, thousands of women listening to this podcast knowing that they have successfully faked their own death and pulled the wool over all of our eyes. Yeah, and we'll never know. And, you know, I want, I want to find out who they are, but obviously then they will have failed. So, you know, good luck to them. Stay out there, women. An appeal to you all. We'll maintain your anonymity. Tasha, how common is suicide? The thing is, we don't really know. There aren't really stats on it for obvious reasons partly because we only hear about the failed cases. But I spoke to a private investigator called Steve Rambam, who's been doing this for sort of 36 years. And he estimates that he's solved more than 750 suspected fake death cases, which it's not a lot of cases, you know, for, for robbery or drug use or something like that. But for someone faking their own death, pretending to the world that they have literally died when they are alive and well, that seems like quite a lot. And that's just one investigator in New York. So Really, you know, if you take a private investigator in every city in the world, it could be, you know, thousands and thousands a year. We just don't know. And the ones we read about in the newspapers, they're the kind of really f interesting, strange cases that compel us. But there'll be lots and lots of much more pedestrian cases of someone who committed some insurance fraud, pretended they were dead and got found out a few weeks later. Let's talk a bit more about the reasons that people do this. You mentioned their insurance fraud. What kind of reasons trigger people to want to disappear? The most common one seems to be debt, deep financial distress, the kind of thing that sends people sort of to the edge. And it's people who would rather, you know, rather than declare bankruptcy or rather than be in incredible debt or face up to the serious trouble they're in, this is the route they take. So it's quite interesting, you know, there must be quite a lot of pride involved with it, a lot of desire to kind of avoid being seen as a failure. There's lots of psychology in that, I think. 
Then there's people trying to escape prison. So like the man Nicholas Rossio referred to earlier, on the run, will possibly end up in prison for his alleged crime and wants to try and make a new life before he gets to that point. You know, people just basically wanting to escape trouble. Then there's the kind of just being in a really miserable relationship. And actually, this private investigator I spoke to, he said that you do get people who ring up and they say, I really want to escape because I just sort of hate my wife and my kids and I, I, I'm in debt and I want to I be gone. And that's obviously a really bad reason to do it. Not that there are any good reasons to fake your own death. And obviously, it's a terrible idea. But there are people who are just completely miserable and they see this as the only way out. But then I did also talk to somebody who has dealt with women who have considered faking their own death or at least trying to disappear because they're in a sort of abusive relationship or they're being stalked. And that's obviously really devastating and sad. But the advice is always that faking your own death will never lead anywhere good. You've spoken to Frank Ahern Kasher, who is the author of How to Disappear. How does he help people? What does he advise? So he's such an interesting guy and he's got these big black sunglasses and he wouldn't tell me where he was when I spoke to him. <laughs> so he's really into, and I, he said he was in Paris, but I'm pretty sure he was somewhere else. He's really into digital privacy and sort of staying off grid. Have in you that considered sense. the fact um, that he may be a man who has previously faked his own death? It occurred to me, and to be honest, I wouldn't be able to get any truth out of him even if I tried. He's so good at avoiding those sorts of questions. So he was a really interesting guy to speak to and has really gone deep over the years on this. And his job is partly, he's a blackmail consultant. So people come to him and they're, having, they're being blackmailed or they might have crashed their car into a wall once and now that appears at the top of their Google search and they want to have that disappeared from the internet. So it's really ethically fascinating and obviously a very very fine line but he helps people disappear online and so you know how to kind of get off your smartphone not leave a trace um not have anything about you any social media how to kind of basically kill your your identity in the digital sphere but even he who helps people do this he says that you know he would never ever advise someone to really try to pretend they have died in the real world that is the worst idea ever and he says that when people ring up and say, can you help me fake my own death? He says, absolutely not. But digitally, he very much feels that we could all sort of do with being, I guess, a bit less alive. How does he recommend that people do that? Are there any tricks of the trade that he's able to share with us? So one of the things he says is that if you really want to disappear offline, you have to Google yourself and find out all the different things you turn up on. Because you will have signed up to things in the past, you will have commented on something, and you basically have to go through and delete all of that stuff. Find the pathways that lead people to you through Google. You'd have to get rid of your smartphone, start using a burner phone. You'd have to stop logging into cafe Wi-Fi. I mean, it's a big thing, like it's no small thing. What he does when people really want to be disappeared online, he starts creating sort of fake identities for people to kind of pull people in a different direction so that if I was Googling someone, it might say, oh, they live in Paris, but really they live in London, but we've created an identity for them that suggests they live in Paris. It's a kind of misdirection. So it gets very complicated and, and, and a bit murky, but really interesting. Kasha, one of the reasons that he objects so much to trying to disappear yourself in the physical world is quite a simple logistical point, isn't it? Yes, because the thing is, you need a body to be declared dead, generally. Otherwise, it takes years for someone to pay out, for example, life insurance or any of the benefits that that person faking their own death might believe they'll get. So the main reason it's a really stupid idea is that 
there is a lack of a body and you also generally have to do it by water to pretend you've drowned because that's the most common way that people would do it. That's what John Darwin did. He got in a canoe and pretended that he had had a canoeing accident. John Stonehouse, the MP, he left his clothes on Miami Beach, went off and then wanted people to believe that he drowned and then actually he was on the way to Australia. So that's how people do it. But in the end, there is no body. And so people keep searching. And in the end, you know, these people get found out or the ones we know about anyway. So they choose water because it's the most plausible situation in which you wouldn't find a body. Is that it? Exactly. So if you've drowned in the sea, it's very likely that the body won't be found. And people will have to search and search and search. And sometimes, you know, you can't find someone who's drowned like that. But if you said, oh, I I had a car crash, obviously, that's much harder to believe. It sounds like from both Frank's advice and from the things that we've talked about, this is an extremely difficult thing to do. Is your read on this that it's a real small fraction of these cases which work? The sense I got was that more people attempt it than we might think. I don't know how many, but that it's not as rare that people attempt it as we might imagine. And actually they might just get found out so quickly that we never hear about it. But everyone I spoke to said that they were amazed by how many people they have encountered who have tried it. So it kind of makes me think that really, maybe some of us are more capable of being so desperate than we imagine. You know, I always think only someone else would do that, but it's possible that any of us could sort of get into that situation. I hope not, but I think it's a small fraction of people, but more common than we might think. So for those people, and it sounds like there are many who do fail in this, who are discovered, are there any consequences? Is this a legal thing to do? So faking your own death isn't in itself a crime. But all of the different things that you have to do to be presumed dead are generally illegal. So fraud, conspiracy, getting fake passports, all of these different things that you might have to do there was the case that really made me laugh, actually, even though it's, you know, faking your own death is no laughing matter. But this guy got found out because he had faked a passport and on it, he'd misspelled registry. He just mixed up two letters. And so as soon as people looked at it, they saw that it was obviously not an official document. So these small things, you know, they're, they're really hard to pull off and you can make really stupid mistakes. And the moment you make a stupid mistake, however small, it's over for you. So it's just the way that you get to that point that, lands you in all kinds of legal trouble. And you can go to prison for years and years and years. So it's it's really, really not something you should do. But I think the fascination with it will be enduring because it's quite amazing to imagine that someone could cut ties with their entire family, their all their friends, their job, their whole life, and go and make a new life somewhere else, letting everybody back home believe that they have died. Thanks, Kasia. It is extremely intriguing and you always bring the most brilliant and, dare I say, slightly bizarre stories. So it is always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) For daily coverage of the most important news from across the world, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get 20% off a digital subscription to i. We'd love to hear any comments or suggestions, so drop us a line at podcast at inews.co.uk and don't forget to write us a review on your favourite podcast apps. I'm Molly Blackall. You can follow me on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at molly.blackall. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you all next week.